0: Hello my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Happy New Year to everybody. Today Helen Thompson and I are talking with Robert Saunders, historian and writer and we're going to try and identify two possible trends in British politics for the coming year. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading review of culture and ideas. And the LRB is returning to First Principles with their latest exclusive offer for Talking Politics listeners. Get 12 issues of the magazine for just £12 and they'll also send you one of their surprisingly famous tote bags acclaimed by the likes of New York Magazine and Vice. Just use the URL mylrb.co.uk slash talkingbag. That's mylrb.co.uk slash talking back. Robert, we're not going to talk about COVID, or I suppose we might get to COVID, who knows, it's quite hard to avoid it. We want to talk about a couple of things that may or may not happen and try and explore why they might not happen, as well as why they might. One picked up on something that Helen and I were talking about before Christmas, and it's basically the question of how this government might fall. And you could say there are two basic electoral markers of the fact that Boris Johnson is in trouble, and perhaps the Conservative Party are in trouble. And they are the classic markers. One is by-elections and the other is opinion polls. In the opinion polls, Labour are now consistently ahead, not massively ahead, but given where Labour was about six months ago, the direction of travel is clear. And the other is that by-elections are being lost in completely safe seats, supposedly, to the Liberal Democrats. And as Helen and I discussed, that points in two different directions. Uh, Labour did very badly in both of those by-elections. But Labour is ahead in the polls. And it raises that question, that perennial question in British politics, which may be more acute now because of where Scotland is in electoral calculations. For the whole of the UK, Labour doesn't look like it's going to win many seats in Scotland. Is there a way of getting the Tories out without at least some combination, cooperation between those two types of opposition? The opposition that sees Liberal Democrats winning seats in the South and the general tide of public opinion that seems to suggest that Labour is regaining ground, not just in the former Red Wall seats, but one might say nationally, although that's a a difficult word to unpack here. We might get onto the history of this, but let's just start with the present. Is it always, do you think, a kind of pie-in-the-sky idea that there could be some kind of coordination or cooperation between the two opposition parties, leaving aside the nationalist parties and leaving the Greens out of it for now, the two historic opposition parties
1: to get the Tories out? Well, I think to some extent, the fortunes of the two parties are always yoked together, almost regardless of what might happen in terms of formal pacts or alliances. The Labour Party needs a Liberal Democrat revival, because the Liberal Democrats can compete and can win in seats where the Labour Party simply isn't competitive. I grew up in the West Country, In very large parts of the West Country, the Labour Party barely exists as a serious electoral organisation. So the Labour Party actually needs a Liberal Democrat Party that is doing well and is taking seats off the Conservatives. At the same time, the Liberal Democrats need a Labour Party that doesn't frighten its own voters. It needs its own voters to be comfortable with the idea of Labour winning government if they vote Liberal Democrat. So in the same way that the cratering of the Liberal Democrat vote in 2015 was very bad for the Labour Party, And the anti-Corbyn backlash was very bad for the Liberal Democrats in 2019. The two parties, I think, to some extent, can look to the same tide to float both boats. So sometimes I think the emphasis on a progressive alliance can distract us from the fact that the two parties actually have quite a lot in common and are often competitive in quite different places.
2: There are no prospects for the Labour Party becoming the largest party which might be the reasonable limit to its aspirations at this point given the situation in Scotland without the Liberal Democrats taking seats from the um, Conservatives. If you look at this not from long history but just from like post-war history you can see I think the two times that Labour have won power taking power from the Conservatives I mean by that in general elections in 1974 and 1997. They benefited in both cases from what was then 74 Liberal gains from the Conservatives and from 97 Liberal Democrat gains from the Conservatives. I think that that's a given. I think it's also true, as as Robert said, that the problem at the Liberal... Democrat end of it, that if Labour is too far, perceived as too far to the left, then that doesn't work. And I think that that's certainly true in what happened in 2019, that the Liberal Democrats struggled with those Conservative voters who really hated Brexit, but it turned out that they hated Jeremy Corbyn, the prospects of Jeremy Corbyn being Prime Minister even more. So that idea that the Liberal Democrats could really appeal to a significant number of remaining Conservatives didn't come off for that reason. I think the thing that now complicates it in relation to the past is the is the Scottish question because if you look at then what happened in in 2015 what you can see is is that the conservatives were able to use not, I think, the perception that Labour under Ed Miliband was particularly left-wing in order to pull voters back from the Liberal Democrats to their side, but they were able to use the idea that what it would mean to vote Liberal Democrat would be to let into government uh, a Labour SNP coalition of some kind. And I think that's a dynamic that hasn't gone away. It's a rather more difficult one, I think, for Keir Starmer to, to find a way round than the problem of Labour looks too far to the left.
1: Yes, I, I think the other problem that Labour and the Liberal Democrats have to encounter is I think we can take for granted that there will be a certain amount of tacit cooperation that in terms of where resources are directed as a general election, that the Labour Party is not going to fight too hard in seats where the Lib Dems are the obvious challenges and vice versa. And I think there's a certain amount of common policy ground between the two parties at the moment to a greater extent than there was, say, in 2019. The question is whether you actually stand down candidates in particular seats, which is what perhaps the Progressive Alliance of a capital P and a capital A is, is most keen on. And I think that raises a lot of much more difficult questions because it's one thing to ask voters to vote tactically. It's another thing to compel them to do so. And I think there is sometimes an assumption that sits behind this that what voters really want is to get the Tories out, and they just don't know how to do it. And they just keep cussedly voting for the wrong parties. And that these blasted voters, if they would stop voting Liberal Democrat or stop voting Green or stop voting Labour in particular places, would get the result that they really want, which is the Tories to lose power. And I think that that raises much more difficult democratic questions, but it also really does risk a backlash among the electorate. Because in the 2019 election, Rightly or wrongly, a lot of Liberal Democrat voters would not vote Labour because they would not put Jeremy Corbyn in number 10. Likewise, rightly or wrongly, quite a large number of Labour voters would not vote Liberal Democrats because of the coalition or tuition fees or because they disagreed with the policy of revoke. And the idea that you can simply say to those voters, screw you, we are going to force you to make a choice we are going to force you to back either the Tory or the anti-Tory candidates, I think risks quite a strong electoral backlash.
0: Of course, the other thing that complicates this is the electoral system. So this all has to happen under the the first-past-the-post system, which means it's a constituency-by-constituency calculation. But also, rhetorically, there's a, not quite a paradox, but there's a dilemma here particularly, I suppose, for the Labour Party. So maybe exemplified by what Keir Starmer was doing yesterday. Keir Starmer gave his sort of New Year, I'm back, and I'm slightly different shape than I was when you saw me last time in that I'm now ahead in the polls. And also, I'm going to explicitly go out of my way to position the Labour Party as a party of national government, again, whatever national means here, but it means sort of Britishness, um, a patriotic party, a party that is moving away from its recent past, and therefore potentially a party of national government on its own. As Labour moves ahead, as it were, its incentive to even suggest rhetorically that it might be in the business of cooperating with other parties' recedes. And I suppose the classic version of this, and maybe we'll come on to it if we talk about some historical comparisons, is Blair in 1997, who was both, we're meant to believe, open to the possibility of some semi-formal alliance with the Liberal Democrats. But the more that he moved to the centre and became a potential leader of a majority government in parliament with, a, in the end, a thumping majority, the less incentive he had to do it. It's going to have to be very, very tacit under this system. For the reasons, Robert and Helen, that you suggested, as it were, it benefits the Liberal Democrats for Labour not to be a frightening party. But if Labour is really not a frightening party, Labour will always believe it can win on its own. Isn't that one of the dilemmas that's really hard to resolve under this electoral system?
1: Both those two parties actually, in in some ways, have an incentive not to talk too much about this at the moment. Labour is always going to want to convince the public that it is a party of government, that it is a government in waiting, and that it's not going to be beholden to other parties. I think it is very scarred by the memory of 2015 when, as Helen said, the Conservatives very successfully pushed the idea that it didn't really matter what Labour stood for because Labour would be enthralled to the Scottish National Party. But on the other side of, of the coin, I think the Liberal Democrats are very badly scarred by the experience of 2010 to 2015 where they formed a coalition and their votes was shattered at the election that followed. I, I'm talking to you this morning from Oxfordshire where we do essentially have a kind of progressive alliance county council but it won't use the word coalition. It always talks about an alliance because there is a sense that you know coalition was what nearly destroyed the liberal Democrats, so they also I think are wary of of being seen simply as as voting fodder for one of the other big two. so I think there will be all sorts of discussions and debates going on behind the scenes, but neither of those parties is going to want to go into the next election, looking like they 've already given up on on A more ambitious electoral strategy and are simply going to be tied to someone else.
0: I don't know if you saw Keir Starmer's speech yesterday, but you've read about it. Does it at least possibly cut the other way that, given relatively speaking, from where we are now, a Labour majority government, even with its current polling situation, is quite a remote prospect that this language of Labour as a party of national government on its own might ring hollow? I mean, is there a risk that refusing? to accept what you might say is a kind of underlying reality risks sounding tin-eared to the voters?
2: I think that this is a a really complicated issue because if you look at the way in which Keir Starmer used that language in the the speech, the language of the national, he was trying to do two different things. One of them has been what he's been trying to do since he became leader of the Labour Party, which is to try to re-establish what might just be called credentials of patriotism for the, the Labour Party. And I say patriotism deliberately because it avoids the question of like what national means in this multinational union that's in some political difficulty. It's just trying to, in this sense, that uh, embracing the idea of the national interest. And Labour as a national and party is just trying to repudiate the legacy of Jeremy Corbyn. I think, though, that there was another sense in which he was using it. And um, which is more interesting, and that was in a way though to position Labour as being the party that can do what Boris Johnson's government can no longer do. The vehicle he used for that was uh, was the the last vote on on lockdowns in the, the House of Commons, where he was basically saying, you know, the Conservative government was dependent upon Labour to act in the national interest to save it because it's got. These reckless backbenchers who aren't prepared to do what's necessary in the national interest, and in, because it's got some odd historical echoes in a way, I think going back like to you know the Second World War, a national coalition government against a part of the um, Conservative Party, but I think it also shows how actually the territory in substantive terms about the big questions between the Conservatives and Labour are not that far apart, because this wasn't a speech in which. Keir Starman was going to start recontesting Brexit. He was trying to draw some consensus between the Labour Party and and the Prime Minister's part of the Conservative Party. And then if you look at the the green energy issue, which we're going to come to, again, there is dissent within the Conservative Party, but it's not around Boris Johnson. Now, that might be different if we moved into a a Rishi Sunak-led Conservative Party by the time of the next election. But there's actually on the Big questions, I'd say, quite a lot of consensus between Labour and Johnson led Conservative Party. And and, and that I think is also a a kind of interesting political complication of where we are now. It looks like a central part of Starmer's appeal is going to be to say, look, we can do what this Conservative government says it wants to do, but we can do it more competently in a more trustworthy fashion, and you won't have to put up with somebody as chaotic as Johnson as Prime Minister.
0: And also by implication, more unitedly, if that's a word. And we, we will come on in a second to the question of conservative opposition to Johnson, potentially around green issues. But before we do that, Robert, is there any solace in history for people who are hopeful I mean, deeper history, so not just going back to 2010, 2015, the things that have scarred the two main parties. If we call the Liberal Democrats the current version of what was once the Liberal Party, these are two long-standing parties. Through the 20th century, they've jostled, and they have sometimes come together, not often, but sometimes. I believe there was once a formal electoral arrangement for the 1906 elections so that's going back a long way, where liberal candidates stood down to allow Labour to win in about I think, 25 or 30 seats. This is when the Labour Party was just emerging as a potential electoral force at national elections. It's a long way back. But the 20th century history, which looks fairly bleak as a landscape for Lib Lab cooperation, does it offer any pointers that this is actually viable? Well,
1: British politics, I think, culturally isn't particularly well set up for cross party working it's it's a very majoritarian system and as you say you have to go back before the 1906 election for the last time there was a formal pact between labor and the liberals that interestingly was a secret pact even at that point this wasn't something that was publicly acknowledged to the electorate and as you say it involved the liberal party which was then the larger dominant party standing down in around 30 seats to allow labor a free run now you could do that partly because At that point, there was still a fair number of two-member seats. So in places like Leicester or Merthyr Tidfil, you could have one MP from the Liberal Party and one MP from the Labour Party. You didn't force the choice in quite the way that would be necessary now. But I think also that pact did show up some of the limitations to that kind of arrangement. By the time British politics got to the, the eve of the First World War, There was really quite a vigorous debate going on inside the Labour Party about whether they wanted to continue with this pact. Because on the one hand, they were propping up a government that they really didn't like very much. This was a Liberal government that was using troops against strikes, that was sending warships up the Mersey, that was rearming dramatically, that was locking up suffragettes. And that wasn't obviously very attentive to Labour's own concerns, because it knew that Labour wouldn't put the Conservatives in government. So on the one hand, there was quite a pressure to break the pact and for Labour to build its bargaining power by running against the Liberals. But on the other hand, if it did break the pact, it was going to let in a Tory party that was possibly the most right-wing it has ever been, that at that point was running guns to a paramilitary army in Ulster that was flirting with military conscription and it wanted to put taxes on food. So it was that classic dilemma for a small party, which is closer to one party than the other, of... To what extent is the priority to maximise its own individual influence? And to what extent is its priority to keep in government the lesser of the two evils? But that's the last time you can find a formal, wide ranging alliance between the two.
0: And of course, in, in those circumstances, the Liberal Party, though it probably didn't quite understand it then, was soon to be in decline and Labour was the rising force. It's not just it's the other way around, it's not the other way around now. I don't think the Liberal Democrats. In any sense, could be described as the rising force in British politics, so that complicates the incentives too. I mean, it's it's really hard, I think, to find plausible parallels there. If we just take the other historical example that I mentioned, the one that for some people is the sort of lost moment of this, which is 1997. I don't know if either of you think there really was a realistic thought. I mean, the word is that Tony Blair was still thinking on election night in 1997, before he suddenly realised that everyone on his side was going to win and even Portillo was going to lose, that he might well be forming a government with Liberal Democrats in the cabinet. I mean, I don't know if he really believed that. And he would have faced serious opposition within the Labour Party if Labour had won any kind of majority in the Commons to that proposal. Was that the moment that the possibility of the coming together of the two centre-left forces in British politics was lost?
2: Well, I think that the important thing about 97 is that at the voter level, a great deal of tactical voting took place uh, and that that it held all the way until the the 2010 election. I mean, it was complicated by what went on in 2005 because of the Liberal Democrat opposition to Iraq war and the ability to take votes from Labour voters who were also opposed to the war. But I think it Voter driven tactical voting was a structural underpinning of the Blair era. So, in, in that sense, the, the politicians were a bit irrelevant to it. I think, though, what is also true about 97, and I mean, this is just a sort of speculation, really, but I think it's, it may be part of, of why Blair miscalculated as to what Labour's prospects um, were, was that the other significant driver of what happened in that election was Conservative abstention. It is why the vote total that the Conservatives received in 1992 is still the highest number that's been received by um, any party at a a general election. So once you have the conjunction of the ability of the Liberal Democrats to take seats from the Conservatives and Conservative voters keeping themselves at home because they're not really wanting to exercise a a veto, so to speak, um, over a Labour government that's led by somebody like Tony Blair, then you change the political situation quite profoundly.
1: And just to pick up on your previous point, David, you said that before 1914, the Labour Party saw itself as the coming force in British politics, and that was a strain upon the Progressive Alliance. I think that's exactly right. One of the dilemmas for the Labour Party at that point was, to what extent was it prepared to accept a constraint on its ambitions when it believed that the future of politics belonged to it, and that the questions that it wanted to tackle were the most pressing? And I think perhaps the analogy with the present there isn't the Liberal Democrats, it's in fact the Green Party. That the Labour Party is likely to face growing competition for votes in some actually of its metropolitan heartlands from the Green Party. And a lot of Green voters would say our priority is not to get a slightly better version of the existing government from Keir Starmer. Our belief is that the planet faces an existential threat, that we are in the grip of a climate emergency, and that growing the Green Party and growing environmentalism as a political force is the transcendent political issue of our time. And so that sense of being the coming force of politics, the belief that politics itself needs restructuring, that you have to break the existing constraints, I think is a limit on the possibilities of of a progressive alliance today, just as it was a century or so earlier.
0: So let's talk about green politics. But I just want to say one more thing about 1997, which is a very circuitous route into what we were about to talk about. I've just been reading uh, Michael Crick's new biography, it's not published yet, I think it comes out next month, of Nigel Farage. And in it, one of the things that he says is that one of the ironies of 1997, one of the quirks of history is that Blair apparently felt a little remorseful that he wasn't able to give the Liberal Democrats anything after his thumping win There wasn't going to be electoral reform. There weren't going to be any Liberal Democrats in cabinet. The one thing that Ashdown pushed him for and that he agreed to against quite a lot of opposition within the new Labour cabinet was to allow proportional representation for the European elections in 1999 and thereafter. And proportional representation in the European elections was the lifeline for Nigel Farage and his career. And in fact, it's those elections, twice won by UKIP once and by the Brexit Party. And in fact, it was a proportional representation system. After all, Nigel Farage never managed to get into the House of Commons, never managed to win under first past the post. But PR, which was a sop to the Liberal Democrats, actually was the thing that allowed Nigel Farage to become one of the most influential figures in British politics. And though people might think he's gone away, he hasn't. And one of the things that he has started saying, and this is the theme we're going to talk about now is that he wants a referendum on net zero. I believe he's said that in the last couple of weeks. And there's just a rumbling now, and that rumbling is only going to get louder, of dissent both within and outside the Conservative Party against the Johnson's government's commitment to net zero by 2050. But everything that that entails, reading back from there, including a whole set of potentially green policies, which for some, perhaps quite a lot of Conservative MPs and quite a lot of centre-right and right opinion in Britain is going to look increasingly unacceptable, whether because of the taxes it requires, because of the way of life changes it requires, or simply because of what it seems to represent politically and rhetorically. So this was the other potential development in British politics that we want to talk about. The, The growing possibility of serious opposition, to the consensus which includes Johnson and his government on a net zero agenda. Robert, where do you think, as we stand now, the heart of that opposition is? Is it inside the Conservative Party, including potentially the Parliamentary Conservative Party, or is it more represented by the likes of Farage?
1: I think this is the dog that hasn't barked politically over the last few years in British politics, and I think may start warming up its vocal cords in 2022. If we look at other parties of the right in places like the United States or Australia, there is already quite a full-throated climate scepticism. And we can see the ingredients of that in and around the conservative world. There is a net zero scrutiny group now of conservative MPs, quite small, but involves a number of people who were very influential in things like the ERG, people like Steve Baker or Craig McKinley. There are all sorts of groups popping up outside the Conservative Party on social media that really pits net zero as a kind of elitist, woke, pseudo expert led project that is an attack on the right of ordinary people to keep their homes warm and to drive their their cars to work. Now, I think so far that's been constrained within the Conservative Party by loyalty to Boris Johnson, because net zero is a cause that he's very much associated himself with personally. But loyalty to Boris Johnson is starting to become a declining political asset, and it's about to run into a major spike in energy bills. I think Conservative candidates, when they're knocking on doorsteps and Conservative MPs, when they're talking to their constituents, are going to need an answer to people saying, what are you going to do about the fact that my gas bill has just doubled? What are you going to do about the fact that my electricity has just become much more expensive? And it's going to be extremely tempting to say, well, the problem here is that elites like Keir Starmer and Ed Miliband want you paying all these green taxes, which are irrelevant anyway because of what China and India are doing, and we the Conservative Party are going to take them away. I'm always nervous about making predictions. We live in a very volatile time and I'm a historian, so the future isn't really my area. But I would be very surprised if we didn't start to see this year a more vocal climate scepticism, within the Parliamentary Conservative Party, partly because it's it's one of those rare rallying cries that can unite different parts of the Conservative Coalition. It can bring together, on the one hand, the tax-cutting, small-state, libertarian wing of the party and its sort of culture war wing that's looking for a new populist cry against experts and elites and the woke.
0: Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books It's difficult to know exactly what the language is for this. Is is climate scepticism right because of its associations with not doubting the science, but being sceptical about the science? That's presumably not really what's going on here. There's there's deep scepticism about the politics and there's deep scepticism about the apocalyptic predictions, but this is going to be focused on bread and butter issues. I mean, I think Steve Baker said, my constituents are not going to vote to be colder and poorer the implication being that these policies are ineffectual and counterproductive and indeed damaging in the face of what might nonetheless still be a, for want of a better word, a scientific reality. This isn't going to march under the banner of climate scepticism, is it, in the way that it might do in the parts of the Republican Party and even in parts of
1: Australian politics? Yes, I think that's right. I think, like the Brexit vote, this is going to assemble a a large coalition of people who have very different views on on climate but its rallying cry isn't going to be that global warming isn't isn't happening or that there isn't a need to to tackle the climate emergency it's going to be focused i think on net zero skepticism and on the particular strategy for achieving this and about whether things like the green levy or other forms of taxation are the right way to approach it and of course that allows it to connect to another interesting wing of the conservative constellation at the moment, which is a kind of techno-utopianism. The idea that whatever the problem is, whether it's the Northern Ireland border or environmentalism, the solution is always technology, that there is some kind of technological magic bullets that means that we don't need to make difficult decisions. So I think the strategy will be very much, we believe in climate change, we think it's important, but we don't believe in any of the policies that have been put forward to tackle it.
2: There's a lot of different things going on, here. I mean, the first thing I would say is, you know, there is a reason why until really quite recently, there hasn't been anything that was significant resistance within the Conservative Party to net zero or anything that could really be called, called significant climate um, scepticism. If you look at the two places where there was a, a right wing party that has been, gone in that direction quite significantly in the United States and Australia. They're both major fossil fuel producing countries, Australia and coal, and the United States being the world's largest gas and oil producers. So you have a significant set of business interests that are bound up with fossil fuel production in, that, in those two countries. And that isn't really any longer the case in Britain, because North Sea oil and gas production are Declining. Indeed, I think you could say that the sort of the last gasp of a, of a fossil fuel energy driven politics in, in Britain was the SNP's position uh, in the 2014 um, referendum, where just, just before oil prices were about to crash, oil was the material basis of the independence project that was offered by the SNP. So, whatever Britain has right now, it isn't, I think, an energy and climate politics that is being driven by fossil fuel energy producer interests. We've seen a, a rise in energy prices, as Robert has already said, and we can see in pretty much all European countries, I would say, that this is really complicated in different ways, the, the politics of net zero, because in the way in which net zero had been presented, rising fossil fuel energy costs wasn't part of the picture. And you can see if you go back to like September, I think it, it, it was the Italian government under Draghi responded to this by subsidising gas and electricity prices, even though at the same time, you're trying to push the, the, the price of carbon up. We see now a move by the, the European Commission to reclassify some nuclear and some gas projects as compatible with net zero. So I think that there's a, there's a lot of movement going on here that isn't just confined to the British politics at all, and that is best explained in terms of what's happened to All of oil, gas, and electric and coal prices for that matter, oil, gas, coal, and electricity prices um, over the last three or four months or so. So, I think that you can expect that, so long as that pressure on energy prices continues, and so long as some of the dynamics that ensue from that draw attention to the intermittency problem, where wind is concerned, that there is going to be significant pressure that says, even if we are serious about net zero for two thousand and fifty we have to have a, a short term, medium term strategy around what we're going to do about gas and electricity, perhaps in particular. Now, I think there's certainly got potential, and perhaps more from outside the Conservative Party, the Farage direction, though, I think that Baker is moving in this direction, um, from from his public utterances of adding into that mix, some climate scepticism. But I think at the core of it, if we say, why has it emerged at this point in time, it is because of what's happened to um, fossil fuel prices and energy and electricity um, prices over the last quarter. Also, if that pressure comes away, fall, falls back in perhaps part because growth prospects turn out not to be very good, um, COVID situation doesn't improve very quickly, then I think it might fall away again. Once we get into recovery mode, though, it's going to be a permanent part of our politics. And I don't think it's even confined to sort of the Steve Baker part of the the Conservative Party. I can see is it's a difference between Sunak and Johnson as well.
0: And are there any parallels here with, well, not direct parallels, but in terms of political strategy with Brexit? Because as I mentioned, Farage and one or two others have started to use the language of a referendum on Net zero, the implication being that there's something fundamentally undemocratic about this, and perhaps also that the electoral system in the UK doesn't allow, because there's a relatively speaking, depending on what happens to the Conservative Party, a consensus on this issue, doesn't allow dissent a voice. Robert, as you said, there's now a net zero scrutiny group. I don't know if scrutiny is meant to be one step up from research. I thought they would normally, these were normally research groups, so now they're doing scrutiny as well. The names for these things, the the call for a referendum, this is clearly designed to parallel Brexit. And if Farage is doing it, I mean, it's what is going to come to mind. Is there any legs in that, do you think? The idea that this is an argument not just about the counterproductiveness and the expensiveness and the futility of some of these policies, but its fundamentally undemocratic nature?
1: Yes, I, I agree absolutely with Helen that this isn't being driven in Britain by the fossil fuel industry. It's being driven by a kind of electoral populism, But that is a very potent force, and I think that does open up some very interesting comparisons with Brexit, that this wouldn't be the first time that an elite policy consensus, which was shared by the leadership of the Conservative Party, has been swept aside by a a campaign that is much more about democratic control, if you like, sovereignty, a kind of populist determination to stand up for what is presented as the rights of ordinary people against that kind of elite expert consensus. So I think that the challenge for those who do believe in net zero and who who do want to keep this absolutely at the centre of government is whether they can respond to this challenge any more effectively than they managed over Euroscepticism and Brexit. And I think if you're looking for lessons to draw, I think one would be That there's got to be a recognition that the argument has to be made. This isn't an argument that has been won. It's got to be put respectfully and seriously to the public over and again. That you mustn't assume that only what Cameron called fruitcakes, loonies and, and closet racists are on the other side of the question. That this is something that you can simply deride and ignore. There is an argument there which is going to become more difficult, particularly as energy bills rise. And that argument's got to be engaged in. But secondly, I think there has to be a recognition that scepticism in itself is a good thing, that the people who care most about achieving net zero should be those who are most remorselessly scrutinising the policies by which it's achieved. There are real questions about whether a levy on fuel bills is the best way to fund climate transformation. It is, I think, extremely important if this is going to be if this policy agenda is going to be carried through successfully, that the burdens are shared as equitably as possible. And there should be a greater determination to ask whether the policy tools that we're using at the moment are the correct tools, rather than simply contracting all of that out to the other side of the argument and allowing any argument against the specific instruments we're using to become an argument against the policy goal itself. And I think the other thing that might be a little bit different from Brexit is that for a long time there was a real reluctance among MPs of all parties, but certainly the Conservative Party, actually to make the case for membership of the European Union. There was a tendency to take the path of least resistance and simply keep your heads down and hope that the issue went away. Whereas there is actually a quite substantial Conservative Environmental Caucus, I think it's called something like the Conservative Environment Group, which has over 100 MPs signed up to it. So there is potentially the institutional basis there for a Conservative Party fight back and a Conservative Party movement that is willing to make a positive argument on net zero. And that isn't something that we really saw with Brexit.
2: The issues are quite different in their relationship to democratic politics. The two issues are just on completely different scales. I mean, what I think is true, the commitment to net zero when it was first legislated for in 2019, which was by Theresa May's government, I think it was in May of 2019. In retrospect, it does look a quite extraordinary moment because this was a point when, as we know, the country was absolutely um, consumed with Brexit politics. It was a time when Theresa May was effectively a a lame duck Prime Minister after what had happened in the European Parliament elections when the Conservatives had been down to um, 9% of the vote. And her government legislated for something when you stop and think about what it entails, is staggeringly ambitious, uh, and there was very little contested politics about it at the time. Now, whilst that might seem like it offers an opportunity for someone like Farage to come along and say that this, oh look, this was elite-led, there wasn't political debate about it. It simply can't be reduced to a binary question in the way in which whether Britain should be inside or the United Kingdom should be inside or outside the European Union, at least formally in constitutional sense, that can be reduced to a binary question. I mean, within net zero itself is a choice that hasn't been made, is how much of is going to be about the the zero emissions and how much of it, so i.e. point where fossil fuels energy isn't used at all and how much of it is about using fossil fuel energy up to a certain proportion and then using carbon extraction technologies to offset those emissions. So the very nature of it means that there's going to be, even just the target, let alone before we get onto the policies and the future technologies that are necessary in order to achieve it, is the nature of the target itself invites contested political debate. And I think that the more there actually is serious politics around net zero in this country, the more conflict that there is, the more serious our politics will be about trying to achieve it.
0: So completely taking the point that this is much bigger than British politics. And I'm sure we will talk about some of those wider questions soon as well. But just to finish, to come back to the challenges facing the party. So there's a possibility here, and we don't know what's going to happen to Boris Johnson, but there's a possibility here. Robert, as you said, there are real divisions within the Conservative Party that are manifesting as forms of organisation and uh, alliances and comings together of MPs and others. So this could really split the party, at least has the potential to do so. And of course, it could at some point in the next year or more become an issue in a conservative leadership campaign. But at the same time, it does pose both probably an opportunity, but also a real challenge for Labour. If this is going to rise up the agenda of British politics, Labour's got to say something about it. And what you were describing just now, which is the imperative both to make the argument and to be, as you said, sceptical, that is, to scrutinise, you know, the scrutiny group. Scrutiny is a good thing. Research is a good thing. It's really, really hard to do. I mean, the thing that I think probably terrifies politicians and would terrify me if I was around Keir Starmer, is how do you make the case while also doing what you have to do, which is showing that you understand the other side and the voters that you're going to have to speak to. And these may be similar voters to the ones who were appealed to over Brexit and that Labour lost as a result, that it really does make sense to you. And you do take completely seriously their worries, their concerns the cost that this is going to impose on them, the possibility that this money might be wasted, that this might be inefficient, that this hasn't been thought through. How do you make the
1: case while also conceding any of that? It's a really difficult political juggling act, I think. And Helen made a a really good point about scale. Scale is a really interesting factor in this debate because on the one hand, clearly the climate emergency is vastly more important than Brexit. It entirely dwarfs it as a global issue. And yet, if you're just talking about net zero in the UK, in some respects, the scale becomes very much smaller because the UK's capacity to achieve net zero is negligible. There is some truth in the claim of climate sceptics or net zero sceptics that what the UK does pales in comparison to what is done by India, China and the United States and so on. So you're going to have to have an answer to voters who say, why should my gas bill go up? when this isn't actually going to make any significant difference. And you can't do that simply by saying, we're trying to stave off the apocalypse. So where Labour, I think, has got to be, and and where perhaps the progressive parties, if you want to call them that, generally have to be, they've also got to have an optimistic story about net zero, which is also about the conservative value of, of doing something for future generations, but also the immediate tangible benefits of new kind of industries, new kinds of technologies. The idea that left behind parts of the country that powered the first industrial revolution can now become the beating heart of the green industrial revolution. And to say that you will do this in a way that is fair and it is just, and it speaks to perhaps more traditional labour values about distribution and, and the sharing of burdens. So it's going to be a challenge, I think, for the Labour Party, because this does potentially have real costs for Labour's traditional voters. But I think there's also an opportunity there to say that this is an agenda that Labour can seize, which actually offers a new kind of purpose and a new sense of industrial mission.
2: The thing that we've got to bear in mind here is that the net zero issues and the bid to move to much higher proportion of renewables and electrification, it's got to go hand in hand with dealing with the present energy situation. And it's simply not the case that if we took climate change out of the picture and just concentrated on the present energy situation, so where most of the world's energy comes from, from oil, gas and coal, that there's anything's rosy in its own terms. Indeed, it's quite difficult. What kind of policy response do you have to the short term issues? I'm I'm assuming for the moment that, that there is a recovery in economic terms from covid is Labour, for instance, going to be the party that says, actually, we need to engage in price controls in where electricity and and gas are concerned, because energy poverty is such that it's simply unfair, unjust to allow gas and electricity prices to rise as much as they may well do if market forces simply played out? And as I said earlier, you know, you can already see that dynamic playing out in 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 a, in a couple of European countries' politics, but. In terms of the the framing, that maybe can be a little bit difficult for Labour if it looks like it becomes then associated back to the the 1970s. I mean, I think actually that's an unfair charge, but it's not difficult to see uh, how a Conservative Party could present a Labour Party that was effectively committed to some version of price controls in the energy sector in those terms. It's also the case that it's easy to, to describe the narrative in the way in which Robert has just done about saying, look, green growth equals new jobs. It's a way of pursuing levelling up, adopting some of the, the Green New Deal rhetoric. But, you know, the reality is, is that thus far, anyway, the record of job creation out of green energy isn't particularly encouraging and it runs quite quickly into the fact that China dominates renewable manufacturing and it runs into a whole set of issues as well uh, about China's dominance in, in, in various metal sectors. So this is a problem for both parties, I should say. I don't think it's just a problem for, for Labour because Boris Johnson is very keen on the, the green growth strategy too. And in a way that the whole premise of net zero is green growth strategy is possible So I I think that for both parties, or for all parties, there's got to be a lot of really, really serious thinking, deep thinking about how that they can construct electoral coalitions out of the really complicated set of economic and energy and political dynamics that are now in play.
0: And one last thought here that picks up on what you both just said in this topsy-turvy political world. It's slightly odd, Robert, as you said, that the Conservative Party has a strong streak of techno-utopianism in it. Is there space for the progressive parties to be the techno-realists? Because I was very struck by what Helen said just there. Technological transformation as and when it comes, some kind of genuine green industrial revolution is going to be complicated, multifaceted thing, winners and losers with costs as well as benefits. It'll have implications for the labour market. It'll have implications for people's way of life and their lifestyles. it also have profound distributional implications. If... The Conservative Party has a tendency to skirt those questions and just hope that there's a magic bullet out there. That seems to me to create the possibility of a space for opposition parties to talk to people in a language they might understand about the real costs as well as the benefits. It's still going to be incredibly hard to do. I don't know if Keir Starmer is the person to do it, but that space is at least potentially opened up by the direction that the Conservative Party is moving in between techno utopian net zero and net zero scepticism.
1: Yes, I think it is possible. And I think it's also fair to say that techno-utopianism isn't solely a conservative party disease, that it exists on both sides of, of the political equation, that there is, as Helen just indicated, I think often a, a techno-utopianism among environmentalists as well, that suggests that we can do all of this in a way that is entirely cost-free, that will create wonderful new jobs for everybody. And that this is this is simply a win-win story. That is a that in a way sets up net zero and the net zero debate for disappointment and disengagement. And Green politics has got to be very cautious of that. And I think perhaps one of the lessons of of the last two years and of the pandemic is that the public can take more realism than politicians are sometimes willing to credit them with. There is a willingness among the public to make sacrifices, to endure costs, if they think that there is a purpose to that, if they're persuaded of the case for doing so. And so that needs to be a part of the environmental debate too. But I think ultimately, none of us should exaggerate our predictive powers here. We're talking about a very new issue that all parties in British politics are grappling with with a degree of seriousness that they really haven't outside the Green Party in previous decades. And I was thinking when I was reading Keir Starmer's speech yesterday, that it feels like a different universe. But it was only three months ago, when Keir Starmer was standing up in front of the Labour Party conference. And the big question of British politics was, would he be able to finish his speech? Would the Labour Party membership actually allow him to deliver a speech to his own party at his own party conference, while all the talk about the Conservative Party was that Boris Johnson was going to be in office longer than Margaret Thatcher? So the lesson of recent British politics is its extraordinary volatility, its extraordinary changeability, and the rashness of really making any firm predictions about what might happen in the year to come.
2: I think what's really important to understand here, at its centre, net zero is a techno-utopian project in that both on the transformation to green energy itself and on the carbon capture um, side, it is a strategy that rests on technology that doesn't exist. It's a bet that this technology um, can be developed in an affordable way and at scale over a, a very, by any long historical perspective where energy is concerned, relatively short period of time. Once you move away from the language of techno-utopianism, you're moving away from net zero as it has been presented thus far. And I think that is why it's such a enormous thing that is going to dominate British politics. I mean, I agree entirely with Robert making any specific predictions within that is in incredibly difficult. But once you come to terms with what it means to say that this kind of energy transformation is going to take place over not much more than a, a three-decade period. If we are not unbelievably successful by all previous historical standards about technological transformation, it's going to fail. And I think that that is why there is some case um, for injecting some more um, realism into it at the same time as understanding that the, the climate emergency itself and the fact that the, the size of the transformation that is required requires so much investment. The project itself has to be huge. In order to have any possibility of it being realised.
0: And in a way, you could say that the lesson there, and I don't think this just applies to climate any more than it does to anything else. But it's such a challenge in politics to be a realist without sounding like a sceptic. But I think the really acute version of that challenge is almost certainly going to be around climate change. We will definitely come back to talk about climate politics, not just in the UK, but in lots of other places too. If you'd like to read more of Robert, do follow him on Twitter at Red Historian. There are some really interesting discussions there, some of the things that we've been talking about today. But coming up next on Talking Politics, we are going to be going back to the United States, somewhere we haven't talked about for quite a while. Biden, one year on, does anyone know what's happening there? Do join us for that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics.
1: Okay, go on then, Robert. Tell me what you've had for breakfast, if you've had time. Oh, I had a, an exciting mix of muesli and, Ca- and Special K. Ooh, that, does go, that does
2: actually work well. I'll give you that. It I'll does. That. It's, sort
1: of, it's my equivalent of a cocktail.
2: Yes.
0: <laughs> Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.